turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to this Thursday edition of The Dan Proft Show, the first full day of the Biden administration. And uh, on the first half day of the Biden administration, it was Democracy's Day, said the incoming president. This is Democracy's Day, a day of history and hope, of renewal and resolve. Through a crucible for the ages, America has been tested anew, and America has risen to the challenge. Today, we celebrate the triumph not of a candidate, but of a cause, the cause of democracy. Mm-hmm. And uh, the challenge uh, that he repeated, one of the key challenges he repeated throughout his 20 minutes was to um, end this uncivil war between Americans. We must end this uncivil war that pits red against blue, rural versus urban, or, or rural versus urban, Easy for him to conservative say. versus liberal. We can do this if we open our souls instead of hardening our hearts. I honestly don't blame Bill Clinton for falling asleep during that paint-by-numbers unity tripe from Joe Biden. He would have been better to go back and plagiarize Neil Kinnock again. But uh, it's always good to get some outside perspective. And so from Dominic Green, our friend over at uh, The Spectator, across the pond, life and arts editor there, who he got off a good one. The inauguration looked less like Joe Biden's big day than a dress rehearsal for, for his state funeral. The elderly audience was spaced like a crowd in the bleachers of a failing minor league team. The speeches, with Amy Klobuchar emceeing with the gravitas of a principal at PTA night, sounded like a motivational lecture from a parallel universe. The turns, Lady Gaga, Jennifer Lopez, were a senior's idea of what the kids would like. Perfect. Both comported themselves with MILF-like dignity. So did Doug Emhoff, who (laughs) who appeared to be wearing an outsized PVC bondage mask. Administrations are meant to look exhausted on their way out, not their way in. But the elderly Democrats on the stage on Wednesday looked exhausted, worn down by Trump, worn down by their manufactured hatred for him, worn down by the fear and failures of COVID, worn down by the burden of wealth. And no one looks more worn down and less likely to step up than Joe Biden. This was an old, tired speech from a lifer in an old, tired system. It was, as the Biden presidency shall be, a placeholder for the short interlude before the American oligarchy resumes the hardening of its defenses against its subjects. For reaction to that reaction, as well as mine, we're pleased to be joined again by our friend Rob Long, co-founder of Ricochet.com, contributor to National Review, and former writer and producer of one of the greatest TV shows of all time. That would be Cheers. Rob, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Hey, happy to be here. It's a great day after the great day for democracy. Yes. Uh, <laughs> day after this great day. So, I mean, yes. what would be a better day than to be here? That's right. Uh, that's right. And And perhaps you have a... A more charitable review of that great day yesterday than either I do or Dominic Green does. I don't know. Well, I could only. I don't think I could be less charitable. You guys, I look. It's a, it, he's right. Uh, it's, it was a very elderly gathering. 
that's what these things are. This is older than, than most. I mean, if you're not 80 years old, you're sick of the 80-year-olds running everything. The boomers have been in charge for so long. It's crazy. Biden's ancient. Nancy Pelosi's ancient. Like, I think the four people in line for the presidency, like they're, most of them are over 80, except for Kamala Harris, who looked, you know, Kamala Harris looked like a breath of fresh air, right? And, uh, and she's my age, and, um, you know, I ain't young. I ain't doing that good. So you know, <laughs> it would be nice to have some young people, some energy there. But on the other hand, look, I mean, if you're a Republican, you got to take your lumps here. Like, yeah. you can't start complaining about the tone. Um, that's the one thing that you can't argue about now. You got to just sort of suck it up and find a couple issues to fight instead of fighting the tone. You know, I remember Republicans are, you know, mad, angry and sulking in the corner. They all look like that picture of Bernie Sanders. You know, I'm not, you know, I don't want to be here. With but his mittens on. This, yeah, with his mittens on. But the other side gets to celebrate and they get to kind of rub your noses in it. It was not a very honorable, it was not honorable at all post-election period for Republicans. They covered themselves in shame and disgrace. And now they got to like, you know, got to suck it up a little bit and keep searching for uh, not an issue of tone or a he's so old kind of joke, but find a couple of issues and really nail them for him. I mean, the, the greatest gift that Joe Biden has given the Republicans is Joe Biden. So, you know, wait, he's going to he's going to say and do something stupid and you're going to be able to run after it. But the celebration of being a new president, uh, you know, irritating to me. I'm tired of seeing everybody talk about how great everybody looked. Uh, but uh, you know, that's what the winners get to do. Yeah, no, I get it. And and look, it's, it's, nice, it's nice to see Garth Brooks and his new lid. And maybe Joe Biden could uh, be turned on to his <laughs> hair farmer and get a little help with that. I mean, so, 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 yeah. but, but I mean, OK, OK, so you brought up Garth Brooks. I mean, I don't want to be a jerk here. I like Garth Brooks. I'm a fan. But I mean, you know, it's kind of a big day. You could wear a tie. A tie <laughs> yeah. to the inaugural. Come on. That'd be, that'd be a sellout to, you know, being a uh, what? A, 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 a cowboy outlaw, a country singer. I, I don't really think he fits the Johnny yeah, Cash mold, but bit. yeah. Like you're never going to have a more historic gig. Let's be honest. You put on a tie. I, I mean, even a bolo tie. He's from Oklahoma. You can pull it off. I just a little bit of this, like, yeah, you know, I was just kind of walking by and I thought I'd pop in and sing a few numbers. It's the inauguration of a president of the United States. You know, dress up a little bit. No, and, and, and you're right. You know, they get to have their say and they get to celebrate and all that's fine. And, you know, as Dominic Riedek <laughs> rightly points out, they get to bring their celebrities out who they think the kids will think are cool. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But but so that's not the issue. But the issue is to me is just not falling for the siren song of these warmed over unity talking points that we've been hearing from both sides for generations, which, frankly, uh in part gave rise that the lack of authenticity yes. gave rise to Trump in 2016 in the first place. No, I think that's very true. I mean, if you, if you, if you want one of the origins of Trump, not the necessarily, they're probably multiple, but one of them was the eight years of kind of unilateral uh, Republican bashing that happened um, under Obama, you know, where he completely decided he didn't need to compromise. And the result for Obama was a, a kind of, a, except for the fact that the press adores him, a kind of a sorry eight years. I mean, the signature of the Obama administration is Obamacare, which is a disaster and universally loathed. That's kind of what's interesting. What's interesting about Obama and Trump, and I think that as we get farther away, we'll sort of see, start to see them as two sides of the same coin. I mean, Obama was personally very popular, won a massive victory in 2008, 53%. That's pretty good, right? And he was, but his policies were unpopular. And he was punished for that by losing the House and the Senate, uh, which were big, big losses and a million billion state houses and governorships. And the Republican Party had never been stronger 
than it had been in 2016, despite all this talk about we, we never win again. It was incredibly strong. Um, Trump, personally, very unpopular, right? Never, never really peaked above 40. Maybe the early days of COVID, when people were looking for leadership, he was about a 45, 47. I mean, he was doing pretty good. But mostly he was unpopular president. But his policies were kind of popular. People like the idea of border security. People like the idea of the tax cut. People like the idea of regulation, uh, deregulation. They liked all that stuff. Um, so they are kind of like these two guys who, you know, if you want to be beloved and cheered and, and adored and get nothing done, probably that's the Obama mark you want. But if you want to kind of maybe get some stuff done and have everybody hate you, uh, that is sort of the, the Trump model. And the person who has it all figured out, as far as I'm concerned, is Joe Manchin. Senator from West Virginia, the most powerful man in the world right now. Um, and he's just this guy in the right in the middle of the fulcrum of the Senate and the fulcrum of the, of, of the way the government's going to go. And what is, he, what is he? He's kind of a Democrat, but he's kind of really conservative. And he's in the state, West Virginia, that's like this kind of weird state that was kind of invented. Joe Manchin's got the secret. Um, so I would say uh, forget unity. Go Manchin. Figure out what Joe Manchin's doing and then – or what he's eating or drinking and then pass it around to all the senators and see if we can't get something done. Well, that would be interesting because you know one of the other things that was forgotten, you know, dutifully forgotten and papered over by the press corps, all the talk that Joe Biden made about uh, racial justice and equal justice yeah. before the law, people forget that uh, according to the American people, race relations deteriorated under Barack Obama, the, the you know, polling suggested people thought race relations were worse when he yeah. was leaving than when he came in. And in part because he inflamed them with his reaction to everything from the uh, Harvard professor early on to Ferguson later on. So, uh, you know, the, the idea that Joe Biden is going to be this uh, Christ Gandhi figure, the way the D.C. press corps <laughs> is characterizing him. That's really not the record of Joe Biden. Joe Biden is the most machine Democrat you can imagine. I mean, he's been there through bell-bottom jeans, skinny jeans, bell-bottom jeans, and skinny jeans. Like, he's been through, <laughs> like, how many cycles has this guy been in? But on the other hand, now maybe, since we don't have to, everything doesn't have to point in the direction of bad, bad orange person in White House, maybe we can be a little bit more honest about some of the smaller details that sort of bedevil us. Um, that is my optimistic pitch to you. You probably I can oh, I can hear through the uh, telephone lines. You don't believe. <laughs> well, you know what? I, I've you know, since we're just in uh, the day after the greatest day for democracy, I am going to <laughs> default to your optimism just uh, for this moment. Okay. Let's end on an optimistic note, because I don't know if we're going to have a lot of those notes to end on. Rob Long, co-founder of Ricochet.com, contributor to National Review and former writer, producer of the great television show. Cheers. Rob, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Anytime. You can. Good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show and uh, just continue our conversation about uh, Joe Biden's inaugural address and uh, then what transpired immediately after all those calls of unity. And as we talked about with uh, Rabbi Klatskin yesterday, the left uh, has an interesting definition of unity, much like tolerance is acceptance is celebration. Those are all synonyms to the left. 
So uniformity is a synonym for unity rather than an antonym, which it actually is. Uh, So on the unity front, uh, all that uh, flowery rhetoric about unity, and then Joe Biden immediately cancels the Keystone XL pipeline, kills 11,000 jobs, upsets his socialist buddy Justin Trudeau up in Canada, setting the stage for a spike in gas prices, which, uh, oh, by the way, is uh, regressive, increasing the cost of goods like gas prices, right? Regressive people, lower income, spend more of their income on the uh, basics like groceries and fuel for their automobiles. Uh, So, yeah, so there was that. Uh, There was the it's only 100 days, man, mask mandate that Joe Biden couldn't last one day abiding. Get a picture of him in front of the Lincoln Memorial without his mask on. We understand my position on masks, but it's less that, more just the performance art nature of it. Uh, Joe Biden doesn't, uh, you know, walk the walk like so many of these politicians. Okay, cue up the Remy song there. But I I wanted to get to something else, too. Uh, There was no violence, thankfully. Peaceful transition. No issues at the Capitol. No issues at any Capitol, at least with respect to the so-called violent right-wing extremists that afflict the nation. And that was uh, embedded throughout Joe Biden's speech, wasn't it? The threat to civil society, white supremacists, violent right-wing extremists. It was explicit and implicit throughout his remarks. What did happen was Antifa, Antifa uh, showing up in Denver and um, setting fire to American flags and yelling, no more cops in our community, F the pigs, as police were trying to extinguish the fires that Antifa was starting. And uh, also, a related Antifa note, Antifa.com would redirect you to WhiteHouse.gov, which, uh, and allegedly this was, you know, the, the uh, work of some troll hacker. This drew a response from Biden's digital director, Rob Flaherty. So whoever owns Antifa.com is redirecting to our website as a troll. The VP very obviously has, wants nothing to do with fringe groups. Um, excuse me, sir. Fringe groups. I thought Antifa was an idea. Now it's a tangible thing. It's actually a group comprised of real people. Uh, And this brings us to the conversation about the Capitol and what happened on January 6th as more and more is starting to, if not come into focus completely, more and more questions are being raised as more and more arrests have been made prosecutions are underway but uh uh including by the way uh conspiracy charges by one federal prosecutor against a couple of those arrested at the capitol so conspiracy charges planning uh so the idea of incitement to riot sort of falls flat if you have people who planned we talked about the uh, the 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 black lives matter veteran John Sullivan from Utah, who was arrested. There are pictures, and again, these have not been substantiated yet, but there are pictures of individuals appearing to get out of their black garb, their black sort of Antifa fascist garb, and into red, white, and blue in some green space near the Capitol. Now, I can't confirm this was the date of, can't confirm the context, so waiting to 
get confirmation on that. But in terms of those infiltrators, those agent provocateurs, as some have suggested, they saw on site. There's also a new video of a Trump supporter, a guy wearing a MAGA hat, going up to a Capitol Police officer and saying, why are you letting this happen? Why haven't you called for backup? Where is your backup? He pointed to the building saying, this is our damn Capitol building and you all are letting it get destroyed on your watch. F you all, call for backup, get some help down here. And if they don't want to give you effing backup, they obviously don't give a blank about you. These people want blood. So the question becomes, who were those people? And again, it seems pretty clear there were some Trump supporters that breached the Capitol. Were did they engage in violence in addition to trespass, property destruction in addition to trespass? Perhaps. I don't know. We haven't had I mean, there's more. There's been some 125 arrests. They're looking at another 300 people. Uh, And so we'll see what federal authorities determine what will watch as these cases come before courts of law and are adjudicated. But I think we need to keep an open mind here in terms of understanding what exactly happened. And that's what we should be interested in doing, right? Trying to ascertain the truth of what happened on January 6th, rather than just repeating the rote talking points of the left, like so many Republicans are even doing. It's okay to have a layered understanding if that's reflective of the truth of what happened, that it was some agent provocateurs, it was some Trump supporters, some people did X, other people did Y, some of it was organized, some of it was spontaneous, but let's get a handle on it, as opposed to just conceding this story about Trump inciting a riot, Trump supporters laying uh, waste to the Capitol, killing a Capitol police officer, trying to steal our democracy, whatever that means, trying to uh, stop Congress from doing its duty. I mean, was that really the perspective of those people who committed illegal acts? Maybe some, maybe all. I don't know. I want to go wherever the facts lead, as the left used to like to say when it came to the George, uh, when it came to the uh, Robert Mueller investigation into Russian collusion until they didn't like the destination the facts took him. Then it was time to get somebody else to look at it. And Pelosi and Clinton are still saying the same thing to this day, this week. And it's the same thing here. Of course, they'll take the 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 uh, pro forma position of go wherever the facts lead until I don't like where I find myself. And it is interesting to note, and you may just see this in your everyday life, when somebody has to come over the top with a sort of hyperbole that is used to describe what happened on January 6th, comparing it to 9-11, for example, stealing our democracy, overturning our democracy, was that really a potential outcome of January 6th? When they have to use such hyperbole, it usually speaks to an infirmity with the evidence about what they want you to in support of what they want you to believe about what occurred. Right. When you have to overstate the case so wildly, it says something about the quality of your case. And again, I'm taking a restrained attitude, waiting to see, reporting what we understand to be true as kernels of information are made public. And then let's put together the picture 
that reflects an accurate depiction of what occurred on January 6th and who was responsible for what and hold them responsible under the law. Why is that so controversial? This is Dan Prof. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. Switching gears to a bit of a discussion on COVID, uh, certainly part of President Biden's inaugural address, a significant part talking about uh, the virus being uh, one of the crises we face and one of the priorities of his administration and uh, have some folks changing their tunes on the occasion of a new president. This letter sent from uh, one Jeff Bezos to the Biden administration, President Biden. Congratulations. As the nation's second largest employer, Amazon has 800,000 employees in the United States, most of whom are essential workers who cannot work for home, work from home talks about the capacity that uh, Amazon has. We have an agreement in place with a licensed third-party occupational health provider to administer vaccines on site at our Amazon facilities. We're prepared to move quickly once vaccines are available. Additionally, we're prepared to leverage our operations, information, technology, and communications capabilities and expertise to assist your administration's vaccination efforts. Our scale allows us to make a meaningful impact immediately in the fight against COVID-19, and we stand ready to assist you in this effort. Data January 20th, 2021. Uh, Amazon just came to realize now that uh, vaccine distribution is ongoing and they have this capacity. What would the reaction be publicly by the D.C. press corps if it had been Biden outgoing and Trump coming in and Amazon was holding its powder to assist until they had a president that shared the political viewpoints of their senior leadership, uh, allowing tens of thousands of people ostensibly perhaps to perish because they didn't want to scramble their infrastructure to assist with vaccine distribution and deployment because they don't like the politics of the occupant of the White House. Huh. Additionally, the World Health Organization issued new test guidance, WHO guidance on diagnostic testing for COVID-19, that careful interpretation of weak positive results is needed and the cycle threshold needed to detect viruses inversely proportional to the patient's viral load, basically suggesting that um, weak positive results should not be counted as cases from the PCR test. And so um, you're likely to see now a reduction in cases based on the new standard of analysis that the WHO has promulgated. Hmm. Politics or, or coincidence? For more on this and other COVID-related topics, please to be joined again by Dr. Jonathan Ellen, pediatrician, epidemiologist, public health academician, and the former CEO of Johns Hopkins All Children's Hospital, Dr. Allen, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Amazon and the WHO. Um, what about that timing? <laughs> I know you're skeptical about it. I, I have no idea. I mean, I, I guess my whole thing is that um, the WHO thing, um, it, it, I don't understand understand their point. Um, PCRs have always been a question about what's what's an infection, what's a transmission, what's transmissible. Um, we've always had this problem with PCR because they pick up one grain, you know, one piece of genetic material and they can turn it into a positive. So it's always been a problem with the sensitivity specificity of that. 
in terms of why Jeff Bezos decided that the 20th was his day to make an announcement of his infrastructure, I'll leave that to your to your uh, your imagination because um, it does seem coincidental that that's the day that he came out with his comment um, about their infrastructure because that's what we need is infrastructure. Uh, fair enough. Uh, you know, it's not circumstantial evidence is evidence. So we're often reminded of that. Um, I w- on the issue of vaccines, since we're on that topic, yeah. uh, an interesting piece by Faye Flam and at Bloomberg. She writes, once again, the COVID-19 health message is getting muddled. Even as officials and scientists urge the public get vaccinated, they warn that after vaccination, we'll still have to go on isolating and wearing masks. It's a mistake to oversimplify this way, she writes. We should be talking about using the vaccines to end the pandemic, not filling people with dread that they will be stuck with isolation and masks forever. The evidence is compelling that a strong rapid vaccination campaign could render COVID-19 less of a threat than seasonal flu through building herd immunity. Um, what about her point about sort of the messaging on this and, and CDC coming out as we're just in the infancy of the vaccination program and saying, well, even if you get vaccinated, you got to still wear your mask, social distance and so forth. I mean, I, I, I agree. It's a point that you and I have made over and over again. I mean, we, we need to talk about where we're going. And I, I, I feel pretty strongly that we have to talk about where the end of the tunnel is and how we're getting there. And, um, and and be consistent in our messages. But I, I think this idea that it's just continually to tell people about we have to get vaccinated, you're going to wear masks, and it's never going to get better is not really very helpful for people starting to plan. I mean, people have to plan to sort of start living their lives again, as we've talked about. In some places they are, in some places they're planning on it. And the message of gloom and doom in the con- you can do both. You can tell people you have to take preventive steps, like we tell people to wear seatbelts, without telling them don't go drive your car because you're going to get an accident tomorrow. Uh, I want to pick that up. Where are we going, uh, in point of fact? That question with Dr. Jonathan Ellen, pediatrician, epidemiologist, public health academician, and former CEO of Johns Hopkins All Children's Hospital. Back with more right after this. Oh, that ain't working. That's the way you do it. Get your money for nothing. Welcome back to the program. We're speaking with Dr. Jonathan Ellen, pediatrician, epidemiologist, public health academician, and the former CEO of Johns Hopkins All Children's Hospital. Before the break, we were talking about sort of the muddled messaging on vaccination uh, and not only that it uh, sort of gets people to throw up their hands and say, well, this is how it's going to be forever. It also may disincentivize some people from getting vaccinated in the first place. If uh, the vaccination doesn't do any good, I still have to live this life. I'm living under lockdown or policies, then, you know, the heck with it. But you, you made the point uh, before the break that uh, we need to be talking about where we're going, you know, what the road is to something approximating pre-COVID-19 normalcy. And so, you know, at this stage and, and this stage in the distribution of the vaccines, where do you think we are going and how long is it going to take to get there? I had been more hopeful that July 4th was going to be a real inflection point, And now I'm worrying that it may be Labor Day. But I guess what I am is that they balance between all the forces that go with a shutdown world and the forces that need us to have a shutdown world in terms of stopping transmission. You know, we all talk about getting to herd immunity. We talk about trying to get to the point where there's not as much the cases drop. But in the end, it's hospitalizations and deaths. 
the hope is that if by vaccinating the high-risk frontline people, the nursing home people, the over 65-year-olds, over the next two or three months, that we're going to see the cases may not drop, but the deaths and the hospitalizations might. And then all of a sudden, the forces of openness, I don't know what other word to use, but the forces where we start of normalcy start to win over the forces of shutdown. And I'm more hopeful for that happening when people's minds start shifting into, okay, we have cases, but we don't have deaths and hospitalizations like we're having them. So we're not mounting the numbers we're mounting right now. And that could, I hope, happen in April. You know, I mean, I'm hoping for April for that. Yeah, it's interesting because we've seen some uh, real lockdown enthusiasts start to modulate their rhetoric a little bit. Andrew Cuomo and Lori Lightfoot, to name just two. And that's against the backdrop of Joe Biden talking about a dark winter and his incoming CDC director saying, you know, we're in for uh, perhaps the toughest uh, weeks we've had since the outbreak was recognized. Uh, in the coming weeks. So prospectively, she said it's about to get the worst it's ever been, uh, even as it's the worst it's ever been right now in some places. I mean, I think their argument is, if you, again, you have a curve. You know, how many of the people who are most risk for dying are vaccinated? Uh-huh. And that curve, the number, the percentage of that is going up and it will continue to peak over the next two, three months. And the fact that you have a lot of people being indoors with a highly contagious you know, variant being spread around, you're going to have cases going up. And just because the case is going up, even with a lower mortality, which is now you know down to 1.5% case rate mortality or two, which is a lot different than we saw earlier, with the, with the numbers we're seeing now, you're still going to see people dying. And so the hope is, though, that those curves start to cross, like I was thinking, in March. And then when those curves cross, then I think, like you said, the opening, you know, starting to try to start taking our steps into normal world. I think people... We've been talking about the impact of, of shutdown on the human psyche, on opiate addiction, on abuse, on the economy. And I think people, you know, I think that it's starting, it's going to tip back in favor, regardless of whether you scream science loud or not. It's going to start to tip, I hope, in, in by April. And I think it'll be full-fledged by the middle and the summer. That's my hope. Uh, speaking of uh, in the invocation of science as some rhetorical talisman, you uh, wrote recently in City <laughs> Journal about uh, the difference between clinical science and public health in terms of the respective foci of each. And yeah. I just wanted you to develop that because, you know, they're used interchangeably and you're suggesting they're not. No, and I, it's a backdoor way of me arguing the concept that public health has to balance all the factors. And the public health sector is responsible for balancing those factors. And as you said, when people say science, science does not lead, should not lead directly to public policy. I mean, it's true, you know, years ago, the philosophers talked about how the invention of new science and new technology has to have, you know, impact by society on what we're going to allow to happen. You know, can you build a Frankenstein? Well, science says we can, but do we want as society allow ourselves to build Frankenstein? Same thing goes for this, which is just because science says this is going to give you 80% protection, if trying to take on that ta- on that tactic of 80% protection causes, you know, 100 deaths from something else, you may say, well, it's not worth doing. Science said this is what you should do for this problem, but public health says that's not a good public policy. So I think public policy and public health I see interchangeably in this respect. And I see science as something that is has a very objective, uncontextualized, non-contextualized kind of perspective. And I say when you put context into it, you get public policy, public health. The more we stop using science, like you got to do what I want to do because it's science. Well, no, because it's good public policy. 
Uh, when you see um, these um, mitigations uh, in place for the reopening of various b- business sectors, how do you react? For example, uh, Baltimore, restaurants can open 25% capacity indoors, 50% outdoors, but diners can only eat for a maximum of one hour as of this Friday morning. Uh, Chicago, uh, for restaurants and bars that are or Chicago land, Illinois, really, restaurant bars that are allowed to open. Outdoor services allowed, including tables within eight feet of walls that are at least 50 percent open. Is this level of specificity just a, a way of projecting expertise, projecting uh, I- sort of idiosyncratic, technocratic sp- certainty uh, uh, about your approach that really is a fraud that is just sort of performance art the more specific the more data i use the more numbers associated with the phased in reopening the more i sound like i know what i'm talking about even though there's no basis in science for uh you can only sit for an hour uh 50 open eight feet uh, tables within eight feet of walls that are at least 50% open and blah, blah, you know, all these 40% in one business and 20% in another and 60 in another, all that stuff. I think it's true that it is, I'm going to call it a marketing tool that says that we are following some strict guidelines that should make you feel comfortable that we are, we have, we have adopted what the best science is and you're going to be protected. On the other hand, you know, the, the fact is these businesses have to open and they're figuring out how to open with some understanding that they don't want to become a transmission venue. But I do believe that the businesses, that this rigor is what you're talking about, this precision, this rigor. Yeah, right. A false, is a false rigor. We know that. But it is a marketing tool, if you will, to get people to sort of trust that they can, they can come to your restaurant. Right. You know I mean? So now, so now everybody, yeah. everybody has to be Dr. Fauci. I, I'm going to lie to you, but it's for your own good. Um, uh, yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. We'll see how that works out. Dr. Jonathan <laughs> Ellen, pediatrician, epidemiologist, public health academician, former CEO of Johns Hopkins All Children's Hospital. Dr. Ellen, as always, thank you. Show.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. And just going back to that uh, Dominic Green column from The Spectator that uh, we went over with Rob Long earlier in the hour. Uh, just a couple of more Dominic Green riffs and then an appreciation for just how long Joe Biden has been a punchline with uh, some reviews from Johnny Carson, who retired in 1992 from late night TV and Wells Robin Williams. But uh, Dominic Green on Biden's inaugural address, Biden approached the mic with the resolve of a man who's had a double dose of denture paste and a little blue pill. But his speech was the usual blue rinsed anticlimax. Two paragraphs of coherence before the left side of his mouth drops like he's having a mini stroke. 20 minutes of gasping and croaking, the words sliding out of the other side of his mouth without rhythm or sense. The pin eyes visibly lost and fearful. And the inevitable flubs and malapropisms, rural and ural, and ural 
instead of rural and urban. She and Putin and Rouhani will be quaking in their boots once they stop laughing. A great politician knows how to lie. Biden doesn't even know how to doesn't even know what he's saying. Perhaps it would have gone better if he said it 30 years ago. Perhaps it would have gone faster if Hunter had chopped one out for him before showtime. It was a slow agony, a taste of the short and pratfall filled presidency to come. Well, speaking of 30 years ago, Johnny Carson, 30 plus years ago, Johnny Carson on Biden's fateful run for president in 1988. And of course, the plagiarism charge, accurate plagiarism charge that knocked him out of that race back when there were such things as standards for the president of the United States. Now, on, on the political scene, uh, one of the Democratic candidates is Senator Joseph Biden. Have you seen the problem he's been having? He went around and made a speech. And apparently, he quoted a, I think it was a British politician, took his speech and kind of paraphrased it as his own. And then the press got on him, and then he was charged also with taking part of Bobby. And Biden says, not to worry, he reassured his staff. He said, we have nothing to fear, but fear itself. <laughs> oh, zing. I miss Johnny. Hello. Uh, how about uh, Robin Williams? Uh, now this fast forward to the Obama years. We still have comedy, though. We still have great comedy out there. There's always rambling Joe Biden. What the f***? <laughs> Joe says that even people with Tourette's go, no. <laughs> no. What is going on? Joe is like your uncle who's got a new drug and hasn't got the dosage right. <laughs> I'm proud to work with Barack America. He's not a superhero, you idiot. Come here. When SDR was on television, there was no TV back then. Come here, Joe. <laughs> Sit down. Yeah, that's your president of the United States. And uh, just in the case, you think, oh, be charitable. This is uh, his first full day and so on and so forth. Right. I'll remember the standard the left set for President Trump and sets for Eddie, every president who is not one of their fellow travelers. And uh, I'll keep having fun at Joe Biden's expense. This is Dan Trump. is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Follow us at uh, danproftshow.com, at Dan Proft, and at Dan Proft Show on social media. In his inaugural address yesterday, President Biden said it's time to end this uncivil war. We must end this uncivil war that pits red against blue, rural versus urban, or, or rural versus urban, conservative versus liberal. We can do this if we open our souls instead of hardening our hearts. If we show a little tolerance and humility, and if we're willing to stand in the other person's shoes, as my mom would say, just for a moment, stand in their shoes. Oh, your mom came up with that one, huh? Uh, Yeah, if we're willing to uh, identify our preferred pronouns, then we can end this uncivil war. The White House website contact form now asks for your pronouns. Select your pronouns. The uh, cultural Marxists and the purge associated with them is on the uptick, not the downtick, despite uh, all of Joe Biden's 
wonderful rhetoric about soul-searching. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Roger Kimball, editor of The New Criterion. Roger Kimball, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Yes, yes. Uh, so what about that, uh, Roger? If perhaps you do a little bit more soul-searching, then um, we can end this uh, ugliness. Uh, politics doesn't need to be a raging fire. So uh, why don't you be an intellectual firefighter, Roger? Yes. Well, I think that President Biden's preferred pronoun is probably she, spelled X-I, as in the <laughs> nice president of China. But, um, you know, it's extraordinary. All of these calls for unity are totally disingenuous because what we see going on here is the same thing that we have been seeing on our college campuses and in the uh, woke corridors of corporate power and the media for years. That is to say, they pronounce the word tolerance, by which they mean you are free to agree with them. They pronounce the word diversity, but they mean complete conformity about any contentious issue. There's only one permitted opinion about, for example, the use of personal pronouns or the transgender movement or abortion or any contentious issue. There's only one permitted opinion. So that is what they mean by tolerance. And I was uh, interested to see that two of the very first actions taken by the new administration were on the one hand to attack the ground of America's prosperity by canceling the Keystone pipeline, thereby throwing out of work thousands of Americans and Canadians and making a real and a symbolic gesture against the foundation of our prosperity, which is cheap, abundant energy. Not to mention hurting Justin Trudeau's feelings. And hurting, I know, I, I, I sent him a packet of Kleenex this morning to, to dry his tears. But there's, so that is, that's one side. That is the sort of the hard side, which has both a practical and a symbolic import. But then there's the deeply symbolic action of canceling, on his first day in office, President Trump's 1776 commission, which, as you probably know, released its report a couple of days ago on the occasion of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s holiday. This report, and I commend it to everyone, you can no longer find it at the White House website, but it is widely available. I really recommend it. It is no ordinary government white paper. It is a um, eloquent defense of the principles of American liberty. And it is by canceling the 1776 commission. I think the Biden administration has sent as clear a signal as it is possible to send that they are on the side, not of all men are created equal and endowed with a certain unalienable rights as the Declaration of Independence says, but something much more radical, which is to say the philosophy that undergirds Black Lives Matter and Antifa and the radical wing of the Democratic Party, which is to say that not all men are created equal. Far from it. It's a regime of so-called affirmative action, which means active discrimination against certain groups on account of skin color, on account of sexual orientation, whatever this week's victim, preferred victim category is. And when Biden talks about unity, I can't help 
but hearing that translated into German. There was a term that was much used in uh, the 1930s. It was Gleichschaltung, and what it meant was coordinating, unifying all aspects of German society under a certain philosophical orientation. I don't have to spell out what that orientation was. That 1776 commission report, too, should be real real popular at the left's book-burning parties that should punctuate the Biden administration. Yes, absolutely. Kindling. Kindling. It's, I see it stacked up at Whole Foods and similar woke outlets right next to the log. So you wrote a piece in Am Greatness uh, about uh, the Democrats being a party of faction and fantasy. What about the Republican Party? Carl Rove, writing in the journal, The Republican Future Starts Now, he writes, if Republicans are to win in 2022, new prospects for the 2024 presidential nomination must Mm -hmm. have space to road test messages and show who does better at bringing together traditional Republicans and working class Trump supporters. That's a tall order. The GOP needs a strong message and effective messengers to deliver it. Today, they have neither. Uh, Number one, do you agree with that sort of assessment, generally speaking? And number two, do you uh, suggest any uh, emerging leaders that could perhaps constitute the coalition Rove describes? Mm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, well, uh, Carl Rove is a friend of mine. I I like him. I I don't think he's correct about this, however. We don't live in a two-party system. It's sometimes said that we do. We live in a -a one-and-a-half-party system. That is to say there's a sort of regime party which is led by the woke uh, contingent, mostly Democrats, but it is uh, heavily populated with Republicans who are not conservative, who are just as much part of this progressive coalition as the Democrats are. And they are, you know, lock, stock, and barrel. Once again, they are part of the anti-populist coalition. So uh, what happened about four years ago was that something that people thought was impossible. They hadn't taken precautions against the phenomenon of Donald Trump because they thought it could never happen. And they resolved to make sure that it didn't happen again. And they and they did. I, I believe that this election uh, was fraudulent uh, and that it was a, a coalition of uh, you know, big tech, fraudulent votes through mail-in ballots and so on. Maybe even some, uh, maybe even some hanky-panky with certain of the uh, vote counting machinery. That's uh, up for grabs, I think. But I, they made sure that that uh, Joe Biden was seen to be the winner, even though I believe uh, he, he wasn't. And that's going to happen again and again and again. I, I think that it's very likely in fact, that 2016 will be the last free and fair election. The people who actually rule this country, the oligarchy, are not going to let something like Donald Trump happen again. It doesn't. But voters have a, a choice, but it's a choice that is determined by the oligarchy. They say, yes, yeah, you can pick George H.W. Bush. You can't pick pick George W. Bush because he is too far outside the spectrum. You, know, you can pick uh, Mitt Romney who's, you know, indistinguishable from the soy boy pablum of the Democrats. It's a, you know, he got, has a certain Grecian formula look. He looks like an old-style Republican, but, but basically he is completely weak. And uh, you can vote for people like that who are not going to make any fundamental changes. They don't, they, it's the globalist agenda. They don't want um, the, the people to assert uh, American national identity, They are against the America first policies that Donald Trump formulated. The fact that wages at the bottom, you know, were were rising rapidly under Trump, something they don't care about. It's the the Goldman Sachs uh, contingent that what they care about is their deals with China, their deals with the 
with the global elite. They don't care about America. It's fine for them to uh, open the southern borders, bring in all of these uh, future Democratic voters. That's fine with them. What, what about the American working class? Tough. One and a half party system uh, lorded over by uh, big tech oligarchs. I'm going to post that uh, that observation on Parler. Oh, wait, I, I can't. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Roger Kimball, editor of the New Criterion. Roger, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. My pleasure. 2021 is already off to a disturbing start for conservatives. We've seen Twitter unilaterally shut down President Trump's account. The conservative platform Parler was booted off the App Store by Apple. And big tech is muzzling free speech at a speed that nobody could have predicted. For a preview of the politically correct dangers facing America as the Biden-Harris era begins this week, just go to SalemNow.com and download your copy of No Safe Spaces or order the DVD. It's fast, easy to do, and you and your family need to see this important film now before any more of our freedoms are muzzled. Again, go to SalemNow.com and get your copy of No Safe Spaces. and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. I want to uh, build on the conversation we were having with Roger Kimball, particularly uh, some of his last comments about we don't have a a two-party system in this country. We have a -a one-and-a-half-party system since half the Republican Party starts from the patrician, big government, uh, ruling class mentality of the left. Uh, a good piece at uh, Tablet by Professor Michael Lind down at University of Texas. Michael Lind, uh, we've had on the show many times. Uh, he wrote the book New Class War, which you should read. Essentially, he uh, is one who suggests that the real divider in America in terms of haves and have nots, the Accepted and the forgotten is a college degree. But uh, all this talk of oligarchs and in uh, and, and, and America, not in Russia, like we used to talk about them, but the big tech oligarchs, the corporate titans, the cultural oligarchs. Lynn gives us some historical perspective that is uh, nuanced and I think important. He uh, writes that. Um, the rising ruling class in America is found in every major city in every region. Membership in it still depends on having the right diplomas and the right beliefs and the right beliefs. But uh, per my point about his focus on the B.A., he goes on to observers of the American class system in the 21st century. The common conflation of social class with income is a source of amusement as well as frustration. This is not just about the rich as if uh, it's just random rich people. Thus, the right degrees, to some extent, the uh, threshold clearing wealth or income, but the right beliefs, the right beliefs. He uh, says both populists on the right as well as uh, egalitarians on the left miss the uh, story of the evolution of America's class system. And I, I, I'm loath to talk about this because America wasn't envisioned as a case society like, say, India. And we still have substantial income mobility. We still have these success stories that don't occur anywhere else in the world. But in terms of the stratification of power that is in part income driven, but not solely income driven, 
that is a real thing. It needs to be assessed and addressed. And Lind helps us do that. Both sides missed the real story of the evolution of the American class system, he writes, which in the last half century has moved toward the consolidation of a national ruling class. Unprecedented in the United States history, United States history, because from the American Revolution until the late 20th century, it was regional oligarchies that divided America's elite. It's only in the last generation that these regional patriciates have been absorbed into a single, increasingly homogenous national oligarchy with the same accent, manners, values, educational backgrounds from Boston to Austin, San Francisco to New York and Atlanta. This, he writes, is truly an uh, epical development. And he goes through, you know, from the Boston Brahmins to the Astors to the, the various regional oligarchies. He, uh, he writes, for example, upper-class women were the chief enforcers of local society, in quotation marks. Anybody who thinks that women are somehow naturally more generous and egalitarian than men has never encountered a doyen of high society. Mrs. Astor's 400 families in New York had their counterparts throughout the United States from the mainland elite in Philadelphia, mainline elite, I should say, in Philadelphia to the Highland Park set in Dallas. Uh, he uh, goes on again with more historical perspective, but I, I want to get to... Um, the uh, values of the the emerging ruling class, the national ruling class, the homogenous national ruling class, which is this paradigm shift, according to Lind. And he uh, categorized it, three categories that are, you know, to be considered and sort of gives you how they vet, clarify, homogenize dialect. You may have been at the top of your class at Harvard Business School, but if you pronounce 33rd, tooty tood <laughs> or have a southern drawl. <laughs> as somebody with the, perhaps a Chicago accent, that's pretty funny. Or have a southern southern drawl. You might consider speech therapy. You're not in talking about the, uh, the regionalism no more to, to some extent. Religion. You may have edited the Yale Law Review, but if you tell interviewers that you recently accepted Jesus Christ as your personal savior or fondle a rosary during the interview, don't expect a job at a prestige firm. Values. This is the trickiest test because the ruling class is constantly changing its shibboleths in order to distinguish true members of the inner circle from vulgar imposters who are trying to break into the elite. Hmm. A decade ago, for example, he writes, as a member of the American overclass, you could get away with saying, along with Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton, I believe that marriage is between a man and a woman, but I strongly support civil unions for gay men and lesbians. In 2020, you're expected to say, I strongly support trans rights. You will flunk the interview if you start going on about civil unions. More and more Americans, Lynn goes on to point out, are figuring out that wokeness functions in the new centralized American elite as a device to exclude working class Americans of all races, along with backward remnants of old regional elites. In effect, the new national oligarchy changes the codes and the passwords every six months or so and notifies its members through the universities and the prestige media and Twitter. And this is how it can move so fast from civil unions to the Oberfeld decision to uh, Rachel Levin at HHS. He goes on. America's working class majority of all races pays far less attention than the elite to the media. It's highly unlikely to have a kid at Harvard or Yale to clue them in. And non-college educated Americans spend very little time on Facebook and Twitter, the latter of which they are unlikely, unlikely, unlikely to be able to identify, which, among others, things proves the idiocy of the Russia gate theory that Vlad Putin brainwashed white working class Americans into voting for Trump by memes on social media, which they're the least likely American voters to see. 
constantly replacing old terms with new terms known only to the oligarchs is a brilliant strategy for social exclusion. How dare you say that's such backward. Gosh, I haven't heard that phrase in forever. Right. The rationale is supposed to be that this shows greater respect for particular groups. But there was no grassroots working class movement among black Americans demanding the use of enslaved persons instead of slaves. And of course, he uses the the prime example today. Three percent of Latinos uh, support or even recognize the use of the term Latinx. And yet there it is. Woke speech is simply a ruling class dialect, which must be updated frequently to keep the lower orders from breaking the code and successfully imitating their betters. It's really, um, really interesting, the focus on the language, um, which we focus a lot on this show because we understand that uh, first the language is corrupted and then man is. And certainly that's what's happened to uh, our woke elites and not limited to them. Uh, But it also speaks to something else, right? The hypocrisy that's pointed out by elites and politicians who are part of those elite circles based on their office and in some cases based on their family and the other requirements too, the the right degrees and the right views and the right uh, net worth. That This is such an important point. Michael Schellenberger has made it with respect to climate politics, but, but, but you just see played out over and over again across the range of issues. The hypocrisy is a representation of their privilege. It's a representation of their status. They are your betters. The rules do not apply to them. And the fact that the rules do not apply to them speaks to their position vis-a-vis you. And if you don't understand that, then you don't understand this class stratification going on that Michael Lind is describing. We'll have a lot more to say about uh, this uh, cultural development uh, in the coming weeks and months, to be sure. This is Dan Prof. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. Jen Psaki, uh, White House spokesperson, saying yesterday uh, Senate uh, impeachment trial will go forward. The Senate can multitask. They can move President Biden's agenda while also working to convict President Trump in impeachment 2.0. So that uh, presents two questions. One is, can they convict the president once he's left office? Can they? And then the second question, of course, is should they, based on the charges approved by the House. I go back to, again, former appellate court judge Michael Luddig, who was a Supreme Court shortlister in the Trump administration. A president cannot be impeached after he leaves office, writes Judge Luddig. Therefore, were the House of Reps to impeach the president before he leaves office? He tweeted this out, obviously, before the House voted. The Senate of the United States could not thereafter convict the former president and disqualify him from future public office. He would no longer be the incumbent in the office of the president. The very concept, Judge Lutt goes on, of constitutional impeachment presupposes the impeachment conviction and removal from office of a president who is, at the time of his impeachment, incumbent in the office of president from which he is removed by the impeachment. Article 2, Section 4 of the Constitution 
verbatim, the president, vice president, and all civil officers of the United States shall be removed from office on impeachment for and conviction of treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. Shall be removed from office. And so Luddig and Dershowitz both argue that uh, once you're out of office, you by definition can't be removed from office, so it violates the predicate for the conviction. Uh, Alan Dershowitz writing in the Wall Street Journal, and by the way, I interviewed Professor Dershowitz on Friday on the topic too. He uh, actually addressed both in his piece in the Wall Street Journal and with me this um, precedent I raised of William Belknap, who is the Secretary of War under Ulysses S. Grant, who was tried after he had resigned his office and the administrations had changed hands. And uh, Dershowitz notes, well, one, he wasn't the president of the United States. He was never elected to anything. So it's not exactly on point two. While he was definitely guilty of numerous impeachable offenses, the Senate voted in favor of a procedural motion affirming its jurisdiction to try Belknap's impeachment. But two dozen senators who believed he was guilty voted to acquit him six months after he left his post and the administration changed hands. They voted to acquit on jurisdictional grounds, even though he, they knew and believed he was guilty of the underlying impeachable offense. Dershowitz writing a close vote nearly a century and a half ago doesn't establish a binding precedent. In point of fact, he thinks a more compelling precedent is the House's decision not to impeach Richard Nixon after he left office in 1974 to avoid certain impeachment and conviction. There was no movement to continue the process. So let's explore both of those questions now with our friend Andy McCarthy, former chief assistant U.S. attorney in Manhattan, contributing editor at National Review, author of the bestseller Ball of Collusion, the plot to rig an election and destroy a presidency. Andy, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. How are you? So just on the can the Senate do it? Is it constitutional? That question, where do you come down? Yeah, I think it's constitutional. I have a lot of respect for uh, Mike Ludwig and Alan Dershowitz, but I just think they're wrong on this one. I think the world of Ludwig, but I thought his column on this was underwhelming because where he ultimately comes out is who knows what the Supreme Court would say about all this. I think with Alan, it's interesting that he thinks that the only existing precedent actually cuts against him. So he says, well, it's not much of a precedent. And then he has a case that really wasn't a case, which is the House and Nixon. And he says that which was not a formal impeachment uh, move is somehow a more binding precedent than an actual impeachment that took place in connection with Belknap and the other case. I wrote a book about impeachment back in 2014. For some reason, nobody wanted to talk about impeachment. I can't imagine what that could have been. <laughs> yeah. um, yes, actually, Kramer, actually, just as, just as a quick aside, you actually raised in that book instances where you thought President Obama had committed impeachable offenses, just to make that I, point. I did it. And I also, in the 2016 campaign, because there is no requirement that a person be in office to be impeached, I argued that the Republicans ought to explore impeachment proceedings on Hillary Clinton. In the book, I point out that the contemporaneous example that the framers had when they wrote the impeachment provisions in the Constitution was Edmund Burke's impeachment of uh, Hastings, uh, who was the governor general of Bengal. That was going on at the same time the Constitution was uh, being drafted. It was referred to by the framers. Hastings was out of office at the time that Burke impeached him, and nobody thought that that was a reason that you couldn't go forward. Ultimately, he was acquitted. And I think ultimately, if they're foolish enough to go forward uh, with President Trump, he'll be acquitted as well. But, you know, I think that's a different question from whether they can do it. I think they absolutely shouldn't do it. But, the, you know, can they do it? I think they can do it. 
When we come back with National Review's Andy McCarthy, I want to talk more about the strength of the case for impeachment 2.0. More with Andy McCarthy right after this. The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. Before the break, we were talking with National Review's Andy McCarthy about impeachment 2.0 and the case for it. On the matter of evidence, did the House actually present any? I've struggled with this because I think that the impeachment act that they wrote really doesn't match what he did and has a lot of legal problems. Part of the reason I think he'd certainly be acquitted is this is just like simple common sense now rather than the law. Uh, And it, it goes the same for when you do prosecutions in ordinary criminal cases. But what you want to do is the prosecutor presenting a case to a jury is to give them reasons to want to convict because convicting is not always an easy thing to do, even if the evidence uh, is there. And what has happened here is they've basically given in a case which is uphill because you have to get a supermajority of the Senate, two thirds to convict and have the other penalties for impeachment. They've given them reasons to acquit that have nothing to do with President Trump. So. We not only have this profound constitutional issue that you guys have been talking about that, um, you know, reasonable minds can differ on. You have, a, you know, they decided to make it incitement to insurrection and, you know, incitement as a concept in federal criminal law, not that federal criminal law governs this, but it should influence it. You can't have incitement without an explicit, unambiguous call to violence that is imminent and probable, which, you know, there's nothing that Trump did as much as I think what Trump did was wrong. I don't, I don't think there's anything that he said that comes close to that. And then the issue of insurrection, you know, reasonable minds can differ on whether it was actually an insurrection or not. Uh, there's a difference between, you know, the rhetorical use of the word insurrection and what it means as a matter of law. And there's a lot of dispute on that. But Republicans must know that the reason that the Democrats wanted to use insurrection in the impeachment article is because they're hoping to invoke Section 3 of the 14th Amendment to disqualify not only Trump from public office, but other Republicans. They want to lay the groundwork so that you know people can go into court and say, if you were one of these Republicans who was against having Congress count the votes, on January 6th, that you're somehow responsible for the rioting that went on and you should be disqualified from public office. So it seems to me that they're, you know, they're giving the Republicans a lot of reasons to vote against this. And I think if there was an impeachment case here, and I think there is one, the problem was not whether President Trump incited to insurrection. The problem is dereliction of duty, principally, because whether he, whether you call what he did, you know, incitement, provocation, egging on, urging, whatever you want to describe it as, and whether you decide what happened is uh, insurrection or rioting or, you know, a protest gone awry, the fact is President Trump knew about it and wouldn't take any action to protect people, protect the seat of government. 
I wanted to get your take on, on something else as well, because it's you know, part of being a good lawyer, as you obviously are, is being a good legal strategist. And it seems to me that Republicans and Democrats both have, for different reasons, a lot of incentive to make this a pro forma exercise and dispense with it as quickly as possible. One is because uh, Democrats have an agenda to move. And yes, you can walk and chew gum at the same time, but something is going to remove oxygen from something else. You can't be tackling something like border security and caravans or the Green New Deal or COVID related matters, including a two trillion dollar relief package at the same time as you're impeaching a former president and expect that um, all of that is going to get the same level of attention and bandwidth. It's just not going to happen. And for Democrats like Manchin to be talking about considering removing Howley and Cruz under the 14th Amendment, Section 3, that you were describing, because they did something that other Democrats have done in every election in which a Republican has been elected this century, objected during the electoral certification process, removing them from the Senate. I mean, the backlash that would happen there, you know, they think that keeping Trump in the public's eye is unifying for Democrats and divisive for Republicans. If you made a play to go after Howley and Cruz to remove them from office, that would be unifying for Republicans, just as right now going after Trump is uh, generating divisiveness among Republicans, to wit Liz Cheney already facing an announced primary challenger. Yeah, look, I think the backlash from Republicans for all this is going to be intense. And it's not, you know, I don't particularly have any love loss for President Trump. But that doesn't mean that people are not sensing the intensity of the, of the feeling about how this got conducted. It's one thing to say uh, that I don't think Trump proved his case in court, which he didn't. It's quite another thing to say that this new way of doing elections is something that we want to see carried forward into the future and expanded, which is what the Democrats would like to do. And you're getting a lot, a large uh, pushback, I think, from Republicans and conservatives uh, because they sense that, you know, the powers that be are trying to shut down all methods of, uh, of communicating, of speaking, of expressing political dissent and so on. So I would try to disaggregate to the extent we can the intensity of the feeling of being under siege that Republicans and conservatives are feeling uh, and President Trump, because I don't think they're I, I think President Trump sees them as bound up together. But I don't. And I think a lot of uh, Republicans and conservatives don't. And I think that's why this whole push on insurrection is so important. I, I don't think it's just Cruz and Hawley. I mean, they have their eyes on all these guys in the House, too. True. Yeah. And this is part of the reason what you're raising is part of the reason why I think it's pointless to go forward with this. And there's a lot of downside to it. Because you can't remove a guy who's already removed. If you disqualify him, that seems uh, undemocratic. Um, at this point, if he's really uh, as bad as uh, his opposition wants to say, uh, he's not going to be president again anyway. And he's not going to be a factor uh, in the presidential race uh, if they're right. So what's the point of going forward uh, with an impeachment trial, which puts the country and the Congress under a lot of stress in order to disqualify a guy who, you know, is, is not going to be president again anyhow. Uh, I just don't – I see a lot of downside to doing this. I don't really see any upside. He is Andy McCarthy, former chief, US, uh, chief assistant U.S. attorney in Manhattan, contributing editor at National Review, 
author of the bestseller Ball of Collusion, The Plot to Rig an Election and Destroy a Presidency. Andy, thanks for joining us as always. Appreciate it. Have a great day. Thank you. You can never surrender. podcast of the show at danprofshow.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Uh, just uh, picking up on the conversation we had earlier in the hour with uh, Roger Kimball. I'm going to go back to this Carl Rove piece about the future of the GOP, which uh, begins immediately, uh, of course, sure. He has some recommendations beyond just uh, allowing uh, presidential aspirants to road test messages and finding a strong message and effective messengers to deliver it, both of which the GOP, he says, today lacks. And I generally agree with him on that. Here's what he writes uh, the GOP should do. Disavow QAnon, the Proud Boys and militia elements that uh, have infiltrated its ranks. Nothing good will come from tolerating such kooks and fanatics. I mean, fine in terms of you know, tolerating kooks and fanatics or self-policing what he's really talking about. I'm all for a party that uh, has a disciplinary code and is willing to discipline its own members so as to project out to the larger public that who we say we are, we take seriously. The values we say reflect our organization, we take seriously, and behavior that runs counter to those values will be addressed. And, and so I'll take Rove to mean that. But getting into this forever dynamic with the left of they raise the issue of some one-off or some organization that has no currency and we have to spend all our times forever disavowing and forever disavowals. Meanwhile, they're over, you know, Antifa is just a idea and Black Lives Matter protests are mostly peaceful and so on and so forth. You know, they get to sort of walk right through all that. Well, why do I have to disavow some group that has nothing to do with the Republican Party, the conservative movement. Here's the principles, right? First principles. We do not promote preemptive violence as the means to political ends, period. So whoever would do that is, uh, by definition, not part of our movement. How about that? Just simple. Rova has some other ideas that are obvious but are going to require more than just an op-ed. Encourage GOP secretaries of state and state lawmakers to develop a model election code. I think encouragement is euphemistic. It's a moral imperative if you want people to have confidence. I also think that um, what he says about Trump, again, starts from some of the rhetorical premises of the left that are problematic. He says uh, Trump is unlikely to be more effective in 2024 than he was in 2020 in 2020 if he would run again. But he could be formidable. He could win the nomination as we stand here today. He uh, says that uh, Trump will especially be hampered after hundreds of those charged with participating in the rioting at the Capitol are heard in court to say how they came to Washington and did what they did because they thought Trump told them to do so. Yeah, we'll see if that comes to pass. It goes back to the discussion we had earlier in the program. We'll see who's charged and what their motivations were and what the evidence suggests. But again, we can't allow the standard of defining us to be. Uh, the the Twitter standard for banning others, which is how somebody receives what you said or did, even if that is an improper, unreasonable reception 
understanding of what was said or done. So, I, you know, it's a little bit of mealy mouthness to Rove's op-ed that I just wanted to address since he's going to be seen as sort of, you know, providing an establishmentarian perspective on how we reconstitute the Republican Party going forward. If I was Rove, I'd spend a lot less time worrying about who's disavowing whom or what is uh, allocated to in court and more time on trying to identify those strong messengers. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Follow us at uh, danproftshow.com, at Dan Proft, and at Dan Proft Show on social media. Joe Biden, in his inaugural address yesterday on the challenges that the nation faces from his perspective. Once in a century virus that silently stalks the country has taken as many lives in one year as America lost in all of World War II. Millions of jobs have been lost. Hundreds of thousands of businesses closed. A cry for racial justice, some 400 years in the making, moves us. The dream of justice for all will be deferred no longer. The dream of racial justice will not be deferred any longer. Well, how does that work in practice from the left's perspective? Uh, our friend Christopher Rufo over at City Journal gives you an example. So when your kids are back in school or if they're already back in school because they don't live in Chicago, you may want to pay attention to um, just what exactly President Biden and all of his leftist acolytes mean when they talk about uh, racial justice, equal justice before the law, uh, invoking Lincoln for the purposes of misdirecting you away from the substance of what they're actually promulgating. Uh, We go to a middle school in Springfield, Missouri, that Rufo writes about, that held a diversity training program forcing teachers to locate themselves on a, a on an oppression matrix and uh, watch a video of George Floyd's last words. This is the indoctrination of teachers for the purposes of indoctrinating the students, you understand. Train the trainer, train the indoctrinator, indoctrinate the indoctrinator, maybe. According to the documents that Rufo was able to obtain outlining the program, teachers who attended the program at Cherokee Middle School The training began with a land acknowledgement claiming that Springfield Public Schools is built on ancestral territory of the Osage, Delaware, and Kickapoo nations and peoples. The diversity trainers, Jeremy Sullivan and Makai Williamson, asked teachers to acknowledge the dark history and violence against Native and Indigenous people before engaging in the day's program of social justice work. Let's all start with an apology, shall we? Then the trainers forced teachers to watch a nine-minute video of George Floyd's last words, as if they're unaware. The film is silent, showing only white text on a black screen, illustrating Floyd's final utterances, including his cries for his mother. Rufa writes, such videos are a common technique in many diversity training programs and cult indoctrinations. The intention is to overload, overload the senses of the participants to create an emotional anchor that serves to justify subsequent political arguments, even if they're non sequiturs. And so come the non sequiturs. You've just watched the George Floyd video. Isn't that terrible what happened? Yes, it is. Well, what are we going to do about it? Teachers are given a handout to locate themselves on an oppression matrix. 
which defines white heterosexual males as the privileged social group and women and minorities, transgender and LGBT people as oppressed social groups. Presumably those at the top of the oppression matrix, including many of the teachers in the room, are responsible for the racism, sexism, transgender oppression, heterosexism and classism, quoting, against disfavored groups. Because you have the privileged group, the heterosexual white males, and you have the oppressed groups. The diversity trainers then narrow their focus to race with another handout that outlines concepts of overt white supremacy and covert white supremacy. Overt, obvious, lynching, hate crimes, KKK, neo-Nazi, burning crosses. Right. Overt for the purposes of conflating overt with covert, suggesting they're of the same kind. What are the covert? Education funding from property taxes, a color blindness, calling the police on black people, uh, not believing experiences of uh, minorities, dressing up as uh, as minorities, even historical figures, you know, for Halloween. White silence. Are, these are all socially acceptable forms of white supremacy. So how about that conflation? This is the teachers. You think they're not indoctrinating your kids? They're doing it to the adults, such as they are. Mediocre students, most of them. Room temperature IQs, most of them. Sorry, but that's the truth. That's the data. So on the one hand, burning crosses, men in white hoods, lynchings, that is the same as the covert forms of white supremacy, like calling the police on black people, regardless of context. Dressing up in a Halloween costume as a minority, if you're not. Not believing the experiences of Jesse Smollett, if you're not a minority. Even more cynically, Rufa writes, diversity trainers such as those at Springfield Public Schools have begun to insist on a standard of affirmative consent, meaning that teachers must not only accept the tenets of the training, but actively vocalize that acceptance. Remember way back when, when we were... uh, Tackling the Obergefell decision, the redefinition of marriage. Oh, so many, including on the center right. What's uh, if you don't want to be gay married, if you don't want gay, uh, if you're opposed to gay marriage, don't get gay married. Oh, what's the problem with civil unions? Didn't understand you're on a continuum. You're on the left's continuum. Oh, if we just do this, then that's fine. That's not what they want. It's not where they're going. This is a journey. You're not at the destination. One to the other, tolerance is synonymous with acceptance, is synonymous with celebration. You will be made to celebrate. And so here we have identitarianism, which is a 21st century form of cultural Marxism, where teachers at a middle school are forced not only to take this diversity training course that I'm describing, thanks to Christopher Rufo's investigative work, but actively vocalize their acceptance. You must be an evangelist for this. Tell me this isn't religion. Hmm. Diversity training programs, so many of them, writes Rufo, who's done some great writing on this over the last, I don't know, six or eight months uh, since he really committed himself to ferreting this out, operate on a bait-and-switch principle following uh, Herbert Marcuse from the Frankfurt School. They predicate rhetoric, their rhetoric on an emotional anchor of racial suffering, then use euphemisms to make their political arguments. In the Missouri training program, the school district proposes empowerment as the solution. 
which sounds anodyne, even appealing. However, in the documentation, the district defines empowerment as training students to refuse to accept the dominant ideology and their subordinate status and take actions to redistribute social power more equitably. The district defines a euphemism with more euphemisms, but the deeper meaning is clear. American society is white supremacist and must be replaced with a regime of race-based redistribution. And then on down the line to other identitarian categories for the same purposes, redistribution of power and resources that confer power. So what was... uh, you know, fun to be aghast about but not pay much attention to when it was on the campus of Berkeley or in the Ivy League is now at a Missouri middle school. And let me tell you, in Chicagoland, it's at your schools too. You have the Chicago public school system was one of the first to adopt the 1619 Project Revisionist History of America and make that their history program. You starting to snap out of it? Starting to wake up and pay attention? It, it doesn't matter who the president is. As long as K through 12 systems are who they are, are run by who they're run by. It doesn't matter who the president is, as long as the media is who it is. You starting to get the idea that uh, there are fights in your backyard and maybe spending an inordinate amount of time thinking about the fights happening at the federal level where your impact is much more difficult to. To matter isn't the best use of your limited time and engagement, maybe. You know, sort of a corollary to if you can't save the world if you can't pay the rent. You can't save America if you can't save your local school district. Uh, in the in Missouri, I mean, it's not a laughing matter, by the way. It'll be really funny right up until you're in a gulag, you're in a you're in a Cuomo COVID camp, but for race offenders, for thought, you know, for for uh, illegal thoughts and expressions. In Missouri, the handout, according to one teacher, originally listed MAGA as a form of covert white supremacy, but it was removed after pushback. So you don't think they'll go after that again and make uh, support for particular politicians an example of covert white supremacy to be prohibited or for consequences to be visited upon those who do? They'll come at it again. They don't stop just because there was pushback at one middle school in Missouri. You think that that means it's over? Is that what you've seen happen? They get pushed back and they just say, oh, okay, well, then we'll just draw a line here. Uh-uh. They incur again and again and again until they get movement forward. No question. And, uh, it, it, of course it's happening. It's not just at that middle school in Missouri. That's why Rufo is bringing it to your attention and we're bringing his work to your attention. Because, it, of course, it's afoot. Uh, Susan and Glencoe saying the same thing. Of course it's afoot. Now what are you going to do about it? Good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. Ben Rhodes was President Obama's national security advisor, you remember. Uh, He's the one that uh, penned an expansive piece talking about... Very proudly, how about how he manipulated the dum-dums in the D.C. press corps, turning them into an echo chamber for whatever line of argumentation or misdirection or 
trial ballooning. He wanted out into the ecosystem. Here's uh, what he has to say about uh, the press corps' job now. I'm sure they will dutifully follow Ben Rose's direction, uh, just as they did during his Obama years. I think the other issue of Homeland Security, uh, as John pointed out, yes, there's a security issue. How do you identify armed militias who are intent on doing harm? But there's a broader societal issue that it's going to take many years to detox the disinformation, the lies, the hate that has been spread. A whole segment of the American population has been radicalized by what has happened over the last four years and by the fact that Donald Trump is no longer there. They can no longer see Donald Trump kind of representing their grievances in the highest office. And so those grievances are going to go back underground. Uh, And I think there's a lot of work to be done uh, to, to deal with the broader societal issues that go beyond what even national security, homeland security professionals could do. That's uh, quite a chilling statement if you try to attach any implications to it. If you wanted to take Ben Rhodes' advice and counsel, need to detox people whose grievances Donald Trump gave voice to. And, uh, you know, under uh, the guise of national security and homeland security because of the hate and the lies that they spew and spread. Hmm. I'm sure the fourth estate will happily serve as the com shop for this sort of purge. Holman Jenkins writing in the Wall Street Journal the day before President Biden's inauguration. Jefferson said a free press is democracy's indispensable bulwark. If so, returning courage to our newsrooms may be more important to bringing America back and restoring a semblance of consensus than any job Mr. Biden will formally accept on Wednesday. Returning courage to our newsrooms may be more important to bringing America back and restoring a semblance of consensus than who the president of the United States is. Well, what are the prospects of that, returning that courage, to help us with that question and get some reaction to what Ben Rhodes had to say about purging what he terms hate and lies. Pleased to be joined by Stanley Kurtz, Senior Fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. Stanley, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Dan, thanks so much for having me. Uh, what about uh, Ben Rhodes's comments? Well, Ben Rhodes is the leading edge of a movement among Democrats to try to influence the way the rest of the country thinks, bring them around to their point of view. And what I've actually been writing about lately is a movement that's been going on in the schools, which I think will escalate under the Biden administration and which is already highly advanced in Illinois. I've been working on an Illinois proposal to really turn K through 12 schools into leftist indoctrination camps. And there's a rule to that effect called culturally responsive teaching and leading standards that's already been approved by the Illinois Board of Education. And it's coming up for final approval before the General Assembly on February 16th. And if that rule is approved, then every K-12 Illinois school will legally and formally be charged with doing um, progressive indoctrination of its students. And I think uh, Ben Rhodes will be very happy with that. Well, that's right. Uh, we were, uh, we've talked about that. We were just talking about uh, Chris Rufo's piece in City Journal uh, about uh, the same happening in a middle school in Missouri, which in Springfield, Missouri, which was excellent. That will, that's not if it happens, that's when it happens in Illinois. Yes, yeah, so you have the uh, purge happening at K through 12, indoctrinators indoctrinating the teachers so they can indoctrinate the students. But then the D.C. press corps, if Holman Jenkins is right, serving as the 
propaganda arm of the state rather than as a check on state power. Uh, what, what are your what's your sense of the prospect of returning courage to our newsrooms in terms of number one, its import; number two, its possibility? Well, obviously, the uh, treatment of Biden during the election was pretty uh, pretty pathetically uh, hands off by the media, and they're going to want to do everything they can to prop Biden up. It's interesting because the press seems to have crossed a kind of Rubicon during the uh, Trump years where they would just openly, it wasn't even an effort to disguise it anymore. You'd pick up the New York Times and on the front page there would be almost an open editorial supposed news story attacking Trump, saying he's wrong and lying and all of these things. So is there any basis for them to go back and being what we've always thought of a press as being? I'm pessimistic about it. And more importantly, I think the public has lost trust in the media and the media has just divided up into camps and decided that there's no point trying to appear as anything other than biased because we've got our supporters. Uh, If you step over the line of progressive views now in the mainstream media, you'll get slammed on social media by all of your followers. And so I don't see a lot of prospect of change at this point. I think we've divided into two uh, warring camps of media. Well, it's more than slammed, isn't it? Uh, Media critics out this week, including Max Boot over at The Washington Post, calling for essentially Newsmax and OANN to suffer the same fate as Parler. Uh, You have Fox News. There was a rumor Fox News may hire David Rhodes, Ben Rhodes' brother, former head of news at CBS, to be their head of news at Fox News Channel. I mean, talk about the consolidation of opinion and the the formal elimination of dissent. Uh, That that is happening with no apology and, um, you know, no hesitation. I do think we're headed into dangerous waters. Uh, I suspect that if they really do try to... uh totally change Fox News and continue to crush Parler and all of these things, uh, you're going to see uh, some sort of uh, reaction. Hopefully that will be um, other outlets that will come to compete uh, rather than people (laughs) complaining more heartily, so to speak. People have to have uh, a way to express their opinions and and hear the news from a perspective that they trust. And if that is taken away, then we're really going to be terribly divided as a country. Biden talks about unity, but if by unity he means that we all have to think the same thing and hear the same perspective, then he's he's going to be sorely disappointed. Uh, perhaps uh, the, the last bastion, the firewall, is uh, what we do here, which is talk radio. And uh, when Democrat socialists get in, uh, you can almost guarantee they'll be the effort to resuscitate the fairness doctrine to if they can't silence you all together, they can certainly try to uh, uh, manage the content you're able to provide. I think that's true. I think that's true. I have to say I have I had a little personal experience myself in Chicago back in 2008, the Obama campaign. I was the fellow who went and dug in the archives in Chicago and uh, found the history of Obama and Ayers working together. And the Obama campaign tried to keep me off the radio at the time and uh, sent thousands and thousands of people to demand that I not be there. So I personally have a direct experience and a strong belief that that the left will try something like that. But again, I just don't think it will work in America. As bad as things are, I think we're still America, and the public uh, isn't going to stand for it, and the Democrats will find that when they try to crush all opposing voices. It's just going to backfire on them. And by the way, to get back briefly to that, uh, the teaching stuff, I wouldn't give up on that in Illinois. I 
I think it can be uh, stopped. There's been a lot of public reaction against it. And uh, February 16th is the big decision in the General Assembly. And uh, I think people can still push back on that. He is Stanley Kirk, Senior Fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. Stanley Kirk, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show, and uh, we continue to prosecute the argument that uh, the action is local if you're... uh, despondent over what's happened at the federal level, what's happening at the federal level, what's happening at the institutional level with uh, Fortune 500 companies, with Ivy League universities and their brethren, with the D.C. press corps. Focus on where you can have the greatest impact because uh, it turns out uh, life is very different community by community, state by state in this country, and thus life can get better if some communities now replicating failure choose instead to scale successes they see elsewhere. A, a no issue is that more salient than school choice or parental choice. Got into an interesting discussion with somebody about the terminology here. and Stop selling school choice, focus on parental choice, uh, make it parent focused so th- because we know the parents are student focused, child focused in the way that some school systems aren't. Focus on the parents and their call to arms to uh, embrace the choices they should have. Uh, And there's a a new book out that speaks to a topic area within parental choice that we've talked about before, and that's for children with special needs, whether it's learning disabilities or other developmental disabilities. There's an excellent scholarship program we have spoken about in this program that exists in Florida that could very well exist other places if there was the activism uh, on the local level and the state level to bring it to fruition. For more on what's happening with respect to programs that support children with learning disabilities and effectively do so. We're pleased to be joined by Lance Azumi, who's the Senior Director of the Center for Education at the Pacific Research Institute and the author of A Kite and Hurricane No More, The Journey of One Young Woman Who Overcame Learning Disabilities Through Science and Educational Choice. Lance, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you so much, Dan. Well, tell us the story of Mia Giordano, the young woman who is the uh, the proverbial kite in the hurricane no more. Well, it's, it's a really inspiring story, Dan. Story of a young woman, and she's actually uh, was born with some, uh, well, she had as a, a child um, very serious uh, health difficulties, which then resulted in her having very serious learning disabilities. Because of this, her conventional schools, both public and private, uh, were unable to really deal with her. It was only when her mom exercised that parental choice that you spoke about and took her out and homeschooled her that they were able to find a non-conventional Canadian program, which actually didn't try and compensate for the weaknesses in uh, her brain, but actually tried to make those weak areas just as strong as the rest of her brain, so you'd have a strong hole. And it uh, succeeded through various exercises, and over a four-year period, uh, she was able to go from this person who really wasn't learning at all to somebody now who is probably going to be able to get into a very prestigious university like Notre Dame. What What, what is this? The, I want to make sure we get to this. The Aerosmith program that you're referencing. What is uh, the secret sauce, if you will? Well, the secret sauce here, Dan, is that 
the brain is a very complex organ. And so, you know, each part of the brain is interconnected. There are many different parts of the brain. And what this program does, it, it identifies those parts of the brain which are weak and are causing all these learning disabilities. And so through uh, diagnostic assessments, they are able to uh, figure that out. And then they're able to target exercises that will strengthen and stimulate those parts of the brain. This is an important point, is that your brain isn't static. Your brain is always evolving and it's uh, always uh, changing so that, you know, if you're born with or have some weaknesses in your brain that cause learning disability, that's not how it's going to be for the rest of your life. You can change that. And this is what this Aerosmith program does. And it worked uh, incredibly with Mia so that, you know, as I said, she wasn't able to read four years later. She read 53 books during the summertime. And then, and, and, so, and, and then does like an Aerosmith program, does that then fold into complement like the individual education plan that's crafted for the individual student like Mia? That's exactly right, Dan. She was able to do the Aerosmith program that focused on her brain, but then also able to do, you know, regular schoolwork as well. And so that progressed as, uh, you know, uh, while her brain uh, was changing and uh, her learning disabilities were falling by the wayside. You mentioned the program in Florida that gives scholarships to students who have special needs. That's the Gardner Scholarship Program. I mean, that's one of the things that uh, is a great thing about what's going on in Florida is that you see a lot of private schools in Florida offering the Aerosmith program because parents can access this scholarship money to take their special needs children to uh, get uh, this type of very effective instruction. Uh, when we come back with Lance Azumi, I want to talk about another report that he's authored, The New and Emerging Obstacles Facing Charter Schools, another innovation in the K-12 through education front under assault from teachers' unions. More with Lance Azumi, Senior Director of the Center for Education at the Pacific Research Institute and co-author of A Kite in a Hurricane No More, The Journey of One Young Woman Who Overcame Learning Disabilities Through Science and Educational Choice. We'll be right back. This portion is sponsored by the American Federation for Children, the nation's largest school choice advocacy organization, helping every family choose the best K-12 through education for their children. Find them on social media at School Choice Now. That's at School Choice Now. The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We're speaking with Lance Azumi, Senior Director of the Center for Education at the Pacific Research Institute, co author of A Kite in a Hurricane No More The Journey of One Young Woman Who Overcame Learning Disabilities Through Science and Educational Choice. Before the break, we were talking about that young woman named uh, Mia Giordano and uh, what she overcame, the Aerosmith program, and how she overcame it. And Lance, I wanted to turn our attention now to this other report that uh, you and the Pacific Research Institute has put out, sort of surveying what's happening to charter schools around the country and uh, the attempts to essentially uh, marginalize charter schools by the teachers' unions and, and politicians beholden to them, whether it involves capping the number or um, uh, or allowing the unions to get the their proverbial camel's nose under the tent. Uh, give us a, a sense of, of where you see uh, charter schools going and, and the role more generally you see them playing in providing competition at the K-12 through level. Well, you know, I think that the, uh, charter schools are hugely important uh, to provide competition uh, and to give 
uh, parents a choice other than the regular uh, traditional public school that's uh, in their neighborhood. I mean, those schools may or may not be doing a good job. If they're not doing a good job, parents should have the opportunity to choose something different, and charter schools are a great alternative, especially given recent research from Harvard and other places showing that uh, charter schools um, uh, help increase the performance of students, especially those from uh, low-income or minority backgrounds. And I think, unfortunately, if you look around the country and you see these obstacles, which I talk about in my uh, new uh, report that you mentioned, uh, you see basically four different types of obstacles being erected to charter schools. Uh, You you see at the state level, you see restrictive laws being established to uh, uh, preventing the establishment and the operation of charter schools. You see efforts uh, to defund charter schools by state legislatures in places, let's say, Michigan and California and other places. And then you see, as you mentioned and pointed out, the teachers' unions, um, they have uh, use their power of teacher strikes uh, to not only inc- try and increase wages and benefits, with it, which are the traditional reasons to go on strike, but also to stop uh, legislation establishing charter schools or to strike in order to put caps on charter schools. That happened in California and Los Angeles and Oakland, for example. And uh, uh, so I think you're seeing a, a lot of this type of um, action on the part of the unions to try and uh, basically eliminate their competition. And one of the other things they're doing is they're using the COVID crisis as an excuse to, uh, to try and stop charter schools from being established uh, you know, for a variety of reasons. But uh, again, the bottom line for them is that it eliminates the competition. It seems to me that um, the, the, the great uh, insight into advancing the flag of school choice more generally came from Mitch Daniels in Indiana when he was governor. And, uh, and and maybe some other states uh, have not followed this as uh, dutifully as he did. But he basically brought charter school operators, educational scholarship proponents, uh, organizations like the Friedman Foundation for School Choice together and said, look, we're going to uh, uh, swim together or we're going to sink individually. So I'm not supporting uh, charter schools over opportunity scholarships or opportunity scholarships over charter schools. I'm supporting everything. And if you want to be part of what we're doing, then you have to support everything as well. You guys have to have each other's backs. We want to create a competitive environment where the charter school operator can chart his or her course with their school and the opportunity scholarship uh, recipient school or the opportunity scholarship promoting organization can chart their own and parents make these choices as we were talking about. And it seemed to me this was one of the reasons why Indiana uh, perhaps advanced the most quickly and has the most expansive array of school choice options in the country, arguably, where some of the other states that have had some had some fits and starts with advancing uh, the idea of a, a real choice ecosystem for K through 12 education. Is is that a fair assessment? I think that's a very fair assessment, Dan. I think that it's important when we talk about parental choice, we shouldn't just uh, be satisfied with giving parents maybe one or two different options aside from the regular public school. I mean, we should, uh, choice really means the ability of parents to choose what's, what best meets the needs of their individual child. And that might not be what, uh, you know, people want to restrict them to, even if it, there is, let's say, uh, regular public schools and, let's say, charter schools. Well, you know, maybe the, uh, those schools still might not be able to give them the uh, opportunity 
that uh, helps their kids. And so we need to put everything on the table, as Mitch Daniels wanted to do, uh, and, ha- and, and um, look at both um, you know, private scholarship programs, uh, charter schools, homeschooling that, uh, with, uh, let's say, education savings account to give parents the opportunity to access different types of programs, especially those with special needs like we talked about with the Gardner Scholarship in Florida. So I think that we need to have uh, an entire um, panoply of different options available to parents uh, because uh, we can't restrict them to uh, just a few things because we don't know their individual situation with their child. Uh, Are school choice uh, proponents, organizations, school operators, are they being aggressive enough in this time of COVID? Because it would seem to me there's a lot of teachers unions and a lot of cities and states that are really undermining their credibility by being wildly unreasonable. I see it in my hometown of Chicago with teachers that don't want to go back to school and teach. We see it in San Francisco with teachers demanding lids on all the toilets now before they go back and teach. I would think that parents might be be starting to get exasperated with them, and this could provide an opportunity to uh, advance the case for choice. Yeah, I think that's right. I think there's a lot of frustration with uh, amongst parents, and uh, I think that you're seeing that frustration bubble up uh, in polling data that shows that even after uh, COVID subsides, that a lot of parents are you know are going to uh, ho- continue to homeschool their children because uh, they just felt that the uh, regular schools just weren't doing a great job. And so, you know, I think that the uh, the education marketplace is going to look very different after COVID. Uh, than before. Also, too, I think that there is aggressiveness going on amongst um, choice proponents. You see in California, where I'm from, you see charter schools who are now uh, banding together to sue the state on various fronts uh, to get the uh, funding that they're entitled to, uh, to uh, prevent the state from basically closing down charter schools that, uh, you know, and again, eliminating competition. So it's, I, I think that you're seeing a lot more aggressiveness because um, to tell you the truth, especially with the incoming Biden administration uh, being anti-choice overall, that uh, you're going to have to have uh, more aggressiveness on the part of proponents of parental choice. He is Lance Azumi. He is the senior director of the Center for Education at the Pacific Research Institute. He's also the co-author of the book, A Kite in a Hurricane, No More, The Journey of One Young Woman Who Overcame Learning Disabilities Through Science and Educational Choice. Lance, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you so much, Dan, for having me. Profshow.com. Welcome back to the show. As we close out uh, today's installment, I want to talk a little bit about uh, Joe Biden's Catholicism and the coverage of it. Uh, but first, I, I do note uh, the story that was in uh, Breitbart that uh, President Biden has uh, removed the bus of William Winston Churchill and uh, former Democrat President Andrew Jackson from the Oval Office. He's added several bus to the office, including Robert F. Kennedy, Cesar Chavez, Rosa Parks, former First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt. What about Corn Pop? How about Frank Sheeran? No. What about Catholics, since he's a guy who likes to wear his Catholicism on his sleeve? Where's the Sir Thomas More, Thomas Aquinas? St. Augustine, he likes to quote. There was a statement issued by the United States Catholic Conference of Bishops 
on President uh, Biden, and uh, they uh, congratulated him, but that said his abortion stance, pro-abortion, no limits, uh, is cause for concern. Of course, Cardinal Supich and the Chicago Archdiocese said the statement was ill-considered. By contrast, Catholic Vote, which is a traditional Catholic organization, advocacy for uh, Catholic candidates, really Catholic policies because it's a 501c4, it's not a political organization, but it does advocacy and education work. Uh, They wrote that um, Joe Biden is a national scandal to our church. And of course, they're right. And uh, Biden and his Catholicism that he wears on his sleeve, being only the second Catholic president, of course, uh, it really exposes what's happening in the church, uh, as well as Catholic advocacy groups, Catholic media, the schism between Catholics who believe in the Catholicism and Catholics who worship at the altar of social justice, including some outlets like the National Catholic Reporter, which is basically a left-wing advocacy organization that places more importance on Biden's platform than it does on the catechism and masquerades as a quote-unquote news outlet. But what about uh, the opportunities that Joe Biden has as this Catholic president to, to emphasize the importance of religion. Uh, James Freeman points out, uh, as luck would have it, President Biden has just been blessed with a wonderful opportunity to show his commitment to religious tolerance. The Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty reports it's on its uh, courtroom victory this week. Federal court in North Dakota just blocked a requirement known as the transgender mandate. In 2016, the federal government issued a mandate applicable to nearly every doctor in the country, interpreting Obamacare to require them to perform perform gender transition procedures on any patient, including children, even if the doctor believed that the procedure could harm the patient. Well, a federal court in North Dakota put that rule on hold. 2019, another federal court in Texas struck it down. In June of last year, HHS passed a new rule aimed at walking back the requirement, but other courts have blocked that new rule. So uh, where does Joe Biden come down? Won't that be interesting to see? Will he allow the Department of Justice to continue persecuting the Little Sisters of the Poor over the Obamacare contraception mandate, for example? Or will it turn out that Joe Biden is to Catholicism what Rachel Levine is to being a woman? Thanks for joining us on another edition of the Dan Prof Show. Stay informed so you can be courageous and we can live free. And join us again to close out the week tomorrow. Thank you. This is the Dan Proft Show.